This morning's scripture is from Isaiah 53. And I'm going to actually back up a little bit and start at the end of 52. Um, just because when I was reading through this, I was having a hard time. Um, I've got actually what they call the good news version here, which is a little bit uh, simplified from the version that we use in the pews. And I was having a hard time trying to figure out like who's who's speaking, who are they speaking about. We know it's about Jesus, but um, anyway, just to get get a better perspective, we'll start at at uh, verse 13 of chapter 52. The Lord says, My servant will succeed in his task. He will be highly honored. Many people were shocked when they saw him. He was so disfigured that he hardly looked human. But now many nations will marvel at him, and kings will be speechless with amazement. They will see and understand something they had never known. The people reply, who would have believed what we now report? Who could have seen the Lord's hand in this? It was the will of the Lord that his servant grow like a plant taking root in dry ground. He had no dignity or beauty to make us take notice of him. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing that would draw us to him. We despised him and rejected him. He endured suffering and pain. No one would even look at him. We ignored him as if he were nothing. But he endured the suffering that should have been ours, the pain that we should have borne. All the while, we thought that his sufferings was punishment sent by God. But because of our sins, he was wounded, beaten because of the evil we did. We are healed by the punishment he suffered, made whole by the blows he received. All of us were like sheep that were lost, each of us going his own way. But the Lord made the punishment fall on him, the punishment all of us deserved. He was treated harshly, but endured it humbly. He never said a word. Like a lamb about to be slaughtered, like a sheep about to be sheared, he never said a word. He was arrested and sentenced and led off to die, and no one cared about his fate. He was put to death for the sins of our people. He was placed in a grave with evil men. He was buried with the rich, even though he never committed a crime or ever told a lie. The Lord says, it was my will that he should suffer. His death was a sacrifice to bring forgiveness, and so he will see his descendants. He will live a long life, and through, through him my purpose will succeed. After a life of suffering, he will again have joy. He will know that he did not suffer in vain. My devoted servant with whom I am pleased will bear the punishment for many, and for his sake I will forgive them. And so I will give him a place of honor, a place among great and powerful men. 
he willingly gave his life and shared the fate of evil men. He took the place of many sinners and prayed that they might be forgiven. Thank you. You can have a seat. So that passage, it sets the stage for our passage in John 18 this morning. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, that's where we will be, and the Alphas can be dismissed to go to class. So people love conspiracy theories, don't they? Maybe you do. We love answers to lingering questions. We wish we had the secret knowledge. Sometimes it's just easier to jump to a conclusion positively or even just completely discard something completely. Conspiracy theories exist because people take shortcuts. They draw conclusions too quickly. Sometimes it's easier to just have a theory about something without considering the facts. Sometimes the facts that you think you're believing end up being true, while others end up being false. I think people jump to conclusions about Jesus. Many conspiracy theories are attributed to Jesus, being born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. These are all truths spoken of in God's Word. In the scriptures, and the world oftentimes quickly denies it. But these last few chapters of John will help to prove who Jesus is and what he came to do. It will prove Jesus as true. And because it is true, it changes everything. It changes our approach to the world. It changes our approach to God. In our text this morning, we'll see this back and forth exchange between Peter and Jesus and how it validates the gospel. Our main point this morning is that Jesus is willing to die for those who are unwilling to submit to him, for hypocrites, for deniers, for doubters, for haters, for sinners. Would you pray with me? And we'll jump into chapter 18. Father, we thank you that you are acquainted with grief, that you were rejected and despised by men. God, that you, when your son proclaimed from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That you did not respond so that you would respond to us in our belief in his substitution for us. And so, God, we ask you to respond to our prayers. Would you help us to see who you are and what you've done? Would you help us to see it as truth, to live our lives accordingly, to worship you because of it? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's jump into chapter 18. I will read those first two paragraphs in your Bible. When Jesus had spoken these words, and he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. For they led him to Annas, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so Jesus admonishes the disciples to be steadfast. We saw that in chapters 14, 15, and 16. And then he takes some time and he prays to his father. And he leaves this room, this upper room, and he goes to the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, as the other Gospels tell us. And the religious leaders, they don't want to riot. They do want to kill Jesus. And so they come to this garden during Passover, and it causes them to come with a large army because they don't want the Romans to see a riot taking place. They don't want the Romans to see a big fight take place. And so they come with enough people to arrest one man. And so this army comes into the garden and Jesus knows what is going to take place, as John says. And so Jesus stands up. He walks over to them. And Jesus was ready for his hour. He was ready for his death. He was ready for the cross, or sorry, the cross that was going to await him. In John 10, we saw that Jesus said no one takes his life, but he lays it down of his own accord. Because in John 13, he says he lays down his life willingly for his friends. And so these guards and Judas, they come up and they're looking for Jesus. In verse 5, they, he says, well, I am Jesus. They drew back. They fall to the ground. They drew back in fear. The sheer utterance of the word of God, the sheer utterance of the voice of Jesus, proclaiming, I am he. They fall to the ground in a humble posture of reverence where they're confronted by the weight of glory, His holiness manifested. They are not able to maintain themselves and they fall to the ground. The word glory is derived from the same Hebrew word for weight or heaviness, an unbearable load. And they had no option but to fall on their face before the God of the universe in the presence of the glory of God. Jesus doesn't shrink back, though. He does ask for the disciples to be spared. He responds three times of saying, I am he. But then he asks, well, if this is going to happen, will you spare these disciples who are with him? And he fulfills the scripture we see in verse 9, losing no one. To avoid a revolution, the Pharisees, they sent this ton of soldiers to go, but Peter doesn't want to be left out. So he takes up his sword in verse 10. He's not very good swordsman, and he only hits the guy's ear. He was probably aiming for the neck. He hits the guy's ear, and Jesus' intent is not to fight with a sword. Jesus intends to drink the cup that the Father has given him in verse 11, the cup of the wrath of God. 
Jesus is no earthy king. He came for a purpose, to die in our place on the cross for our sins as a perfect substitute. Jesus isn't against self-defense. He is not against civil resistance. But don't get any ideas that I am telling you to do that today. He gives his life, though, as a ransom for many, as he says in Mark 10. And nothing will get in the way of this purpose. The soldiers take Jesus to Annas. They take him to Caiaphas, the Jewish leaders. It was Caiaphas who unwilling or unknowingly spoke of these events back in chapter 11. I'll read it for you again from John 11. When they wanted to kill him again. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist proclaimed in chapter 1. It's going to happen. But first, the scene is interrupted by Peter. Peter responds a bit differently than Jesus does. Look at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire, because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And so Peter, as a good disciple, he was following Jesus, but not in the sense of being a disciple to obey and follow and to imitate. He just wanted to observe what was taking place at the trial of Jesus. The text doesn't say who the other disciple was, but John also doesn't refer to himself by name in this gospel. You've probably heard the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. And so it's probably assumed that this disciple who was with him, who is unnamed, was John as well. John was with him. He has a first-hand account of Peter's hypocrisy. And while Jesus goes to death, Peter holds back. Even worse, while Jesus acknowledges who he is three times, Peter denies who Jesus is to him, and it'll be three times. Peter, who declared, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, is the one who will deny Jesus. Peter allows Jesus to suffer without comfort, without consolation, but Jesus keeps speaking truth, even when Peter in his hypocrisy is following, yet is not obeying. And still, Jesus goes to the cross for those who would betray him. Let's continue in verse 19. 
The high priests then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews came to come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those whom you have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus and said and with his hand, saying, Is that not how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so Jesus is questioned first by the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. He has spoken openly in verse 20 when he is questioned. He responds differently, though, than Peter does. Jesus has no secret allegiance. His allegiance is to the Father. While Peter hid, Jesus is open and clear. He will die for sinners like Peter. Jesus, in his self-defense, says to the jury and the judge, ask the accusers for their testimony. If there was a court case today and the accusers didn't show up, there was no testimony in the court, the case would be dismissed. The same thing is to take place in the first century, where Jesus is the innocent, the spotless lamb who Bruce read about in Isaiah 53, who will die for his people. And an officer speaks up, not about Jesus' words of truth, but after striking him, saying, is that how you speak to the high priest? And don't you want to just jump into the story and say, is that how you speak to the Lord of the universe, the faithful high priest? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't take the guy's life, which he probably could. Jesus says, bear witness about the wrong, because as the innocent, sinless one, no one has anything against him. He is the perfect, or he is perfect. He has never sinned. There are no charges that can be brought against him. Hebrews 4 explains this in our, in our response to it. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet, without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And so Jesus, before these Jewish leaders, he stood up. He declared his innocence and he willingly bears the burdens of our suffering. And so let us with confidence draw near as our response. But John breaks up the story again with Peter, who didn't draw close, who withdrew, withdrew as a phony. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You're not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it, said, I am not. One of the accusers, or one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, that's Malchus, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Do you see the contrast, the stark difference between Peter and Jesus throughout this chapter? Where Jesus three times declared, I am he, and three times now Peter has said, I do not know that man. 
Jesus stands up and denies nothing. And Peter cowers before the questioners and he denies everything. Jesus is questioned by those of the highest authority in the area, both religious and political, while Peter is questioned by a couple servants. Peter denies a third time, and then a rooster crows. It's a weird ending for this section of the gospel if you're not familiar with the other three gospel accounts. John, he was the fourth gospel writer. In the other three gospels, Peter, is his brashness says that he will follow Jesus and never fall away. And Jesus prophesies in response to Peter that he will deny him three times. And after the third time, the rooster will crow. And the story is known to John's readers, and so John doesn't need to include those details in his account. But when Peter denied the third time, Luke 22 says this, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So imagine the shame of Peter. Imagine the hurt of Peter. Imagine his regret. Some of us in this room might have the same shame, hurt, or regret because of our sins. I'm really looking forward to John 21 when Jesus restores this hurt and broken and fallen disciple three times. There's hope for us all. John moves us back into this stark contrast between Peter and Jesus, and we see Jesus is no pretender. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, he would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fill the words that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The account moves from the Jewish authorities to the Roman authorities. The Jews, they should be preparing for the Passover, a sacrificial lamb for the Passover, to be celebrated at the temple. And what they're doing is they're taking Jesus away from the temple. They're taking Jesus to the Roman government. Elaborately, the Jews are avoiding ritual contamination by, by manipulating the Jewish system when it's the cleansing of their sin and the fulfillment of all Jewish systems that's right before them in Jesus. Before Pilate, they give no evidence. They just call Jesus evil. Isaiah 5.20 says, But woe to those who call good or evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And Pilate finds no fault in Jesus. In any Roman law, in verse 31, Pilate's not interested in gossip. He's not interested in an uh, internal Jewish dispute. The Jews have wanted to put Jesus to death for a long time, and we've seen that throughout our study in the Gospel of John. In AD 6, the Jews lost their authority to put people to death. Their preferred method was by stoning when the Romans took over. And the Romans, by contrast, they put criminals to death by crucifixion. Paul says in Galatians 3, 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of Allah by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Where God is sovereign over this whole event, the Jews' ability, the Romans' authority, and also Jesus' submission to them. And there's only one reason why the Romans would kill Jesus. Is he a king who would try to overthrow the Roman government? Look what happens in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say that about, to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at this Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate knows there's only one reason why he can crucify Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? The Jews thought Jesus was the king. If you recall, when Jesus fed the 5,000, they wanted to take him and put him on a throne and be fed. They wanted to march on Jerusalem. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he didn't ride a war stallion. He rode on a foal of a donkey. He came in peace. His war is not against this world. He's a king in a messianic sense, not in a governmental sense. Jesus is not going to use the weapons of this world. He is came to overthrow the greatest enemies that we all have in Satan and sin and death. Pilate questioned Jesus. He has never portrayed himself as a king, and so Jesus questions Pilate. Who told you I was king? Pilate acknowledges this must have been from your own people, the Jews. Jesus describes his kingdom in verse 36. It's not of this world. Jesus is not tied to any earthly politics or national entities. And I'm sorry to break it to you, but the election that we have in a few weeks is not going to save our problems. The one we have two years after that and two years after that and two years after that and two years after that, we're going to continue to have the same problem because there's people involved. Our enemies are much larger than those who wear red or blue. Jesus' kingdom did not originate in this evil world either. He says if it were the case, he would fight, but he acknowledges that he is king. Pilate has enough now to sentence him, even though Pilate is clueless. Pilate disregards truth. He says what is truth, and he is not being a postmodern, saying there is no way to objective truth. Truth just doesn't matter to Pilate. He's at about expediency. He doesn't want to deal with this Jewish problem. He doesn't see. 
He doesn't hear. He doesn't have a heart soft to the Son of Man speaking to him. He's listening to the Son of God, who is the way, the truth, and the life, sent by the Father of truth, bringing conviction through the Spirit of truth, speaking words of truth. Pilate cares nothing for truth because it's too hard for him. It's a conspiracy theory. Just another Jewish king. He's making an easy decision and drawing conclusions that are inaccurate. Jesus, who consecrated himself, as we saw at the end of our chapter last week, as the spotless Lamb of God, is given over to the people who want to kill him. Pilate had a custom of sparing a Jewish person from death on Passover, and Pilate gives him the option. You can have Jesus, or you can have Barabbas. Which insurrectionist do you want? Do you want the innocent man who said he's a king, or do you want the robber, Barabbas? You probably have a footnote in your Bibles. It doesn't, that the, another word for robber could be insurrectionist. The Jews choose the man who is condemned to death because he tried to overthrow the Roman government, Barabbas. They don't choose the man who can overthrow our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Jesus is no king in the crowd's eyes. Barabbas ironically means son of the father, Bar Abba. But it's the son, eternally begotten from the father, who will soon die. So what do we do with our text this morning? As a reminder, Jesus willingly died for those who are unwilling to submit to him, for hypocrites, pretenders, deceivers, imposters, sinners like you and me. Mark 2.17, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So let's start with the religious leaders. They're blind because they know the word of God, yet they don't follow it. Do you want to protect your kingdom? Do you want to disregard the word of God? Maybe you hate God's word and wish that Jesus had never lived because if it's a, not a conspiracy theory and it's true, you're accountable to him. The religious leaders were wrong. The lamb was led away from the temple, given over to the world. He is the king. He is Lord. The tomb is empty. And you can choose this day whom you will serve because at some point it'll be too late. He's either a savior or he's a terror but everyone will bow before him. Paul says this in Philippians 2, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow on heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're like the religious leaders, let him be your king. Submit to him, follow him, obey him. Jesus said in, Mark 10, or in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It's dangerous to know the word of God and not to submit to it. But Jesus died for those who do that. Remember Nicodemus, he used to be a religious leader, a Pharisee. Now he follows and worships Jesus. If you recall, as we celebrated at Easter, he was there helping to bury the body of Jesus. It's never too late to submit. Are you like the crowds? Do you want a different Savior? Not Jesus because he doesn't give you what you want. 
The Jews wanted Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the political prisoner. Some people give everything they have for a sports team to win the championship, or maybe a politician to be in office to save you or our country. And I hate to break it to you, neither one of them are going to satisfy. Maybe your bank account doesn't have as much as you'd like, or your family situation is not ideal. We love to sacrifice good things for the best thing because we think that we will be satisfied by the things of this world. But only God can meet our greatest needs. We gather as a church every Sunday, every Wednesday, to remind each other of the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Even we need reminders that Jesus loves us. We're hypocrites too. We sin, we stumble, we fall. We're tempted to skip out on the gathering. We're tempted to give in to sin, to follow the world, to put forth an earthly ruler, to sacrifice our family, to sacrifice church, even sacrifice Jesus for maybe a pet sin. We need reminders as much as everyone does that Jesus is king. Jesus is the Lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. And because of that, we press forward. And it gives us confidence to stand up to the world where we're in the world. We're not of the world like we saw last week. Jesus in, the parable, in a parable in Luke says this, that we are like ta this tax collector in Luke 18. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus stands up and dies for hypocrites like the Jews, not because are part of God's chosen people who want nothing of God himself. The Jews' conspiracy theory is that they just thought there was a better kingdom and a better king. But Jesus is the Savior, and so we can give ourselves to him. What about Peter? There's a reason why it's only Peter emphasized in chapter 18. The rest will flee and be scattered as well. But the focus is on Peter. Including this account of Peter adds to the validity of the gospel. It eliminates the conspiracy theories. Anyone can betray Jesus, but for the man who would be a key figure, almost the most important key figure in the early church, Broad, boldly proclaims the gospel in the days, weeks, and months ahead. It shows that Peter doesn't care what the world thinks anymore. If you look at the book of Acts, Peter is the one who is there at every major instance of the gospel moving forward to the nations. Peter cares what Jesus thinks. And Peter knows not only did Jesus die, but he rose from the dead for him. The biggest hypocrite in the story. Peter will be restored. He will be loved. He'll be commissioned by Jesus as we see in John 21. Maybe read it this afternoon. Peter is a fool turned wise. He's a denier turned defender. He moves from silence to a bold proclaimer of the truth. He's an imposter transformed to a true disciple. If that's you, if you've betrayed Jesus, disobeyed the word, denied to others who he is and what he's done, there is much forgiveness and grace. Those who are his, remember, he never casts out. No one can snatch you out of his gracious and merciful and powerful hands. 
Peter disowned the master, but we must esteem the grace that forgave and restored him because Jesus willingly died for those who were unwilling to submit to him, for you and for me. Jesus died so we can model who he is and what he's done, so that we can stand up to the question, we can confess who he is and not deny while being confident in him. Where else shall we go? I think it's a good reminder that our faith is not dependent on our faithfulness. It is dependent primarily on the faithfulness of our Savior. And I'll close with Peter's words from his first epistle. Listen to the themes, hearing this story of his life, even as it relates to John 18 as an encouragement to his readers. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Think about who wrote those words, the transformation in that brother's life, and the encouragement that it can be for ours. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for not leaving us in our sin, in our struggles, in our betrayals, in our doubts, but your son continued to push forward to the cross to die in our place for our sins. And so we thank you. We thank you with these words from Paul to his disciple Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were believed to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, 